Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests, for those of you who are keeping score, Jacobin editor Michael Utrecht will talk about the surprise election of Brandon Johnson as mayor of Chicago, and Lily Lynch, author of several fine pieces around the Ukraine war for New Left Review's sidecar blog, will talk about how the war undid classic Scandinavian neutrality. Chicago elected a new mayor on April 4th, Brandon Johnson, a former middle school teacher and organizer for the city's teachers' union. He beat Paul Vallis, the former CEO, yes, that's the title, of the city's school system by four percentage points. Narrow, but a result no one expected when campaigning began. The election was in two stages, a first round with nine candidates held in February, and then a runoff between the top two at the beginning of the month. In the first round, Vallis got a third of the vote, 11 points ahead of the second-place Johnson. The incumbent, Lori Lightfoot, came in a distant third. Early polls taken last November showed Johnson with as little as 3%, barely visible next to bigger names like Lightfoot's and that of Chewy Garcia, a congressman who ran for mayor in 2015. In an environment where fear of crime has become such a dominant issue, a progressive candidate with a union background with someone with only a taste for long odds would bet on. But Johnson won. Here to tell us what it all means is Micah Utrecht, the editor of Jacobin Magazine, who lived in Chicago for many years. His book in the Chicago Teachers Union, Strike for Austerity, was published in 2014 by Verso. Micah Utrecht. A lot of us in New York are looking at Chicago with some jealousy. <laughs> what's, what's the secret? The secret is having a militant, democratic, progressive-minded teachers union that goes on strike repeatedly, that is the anchor of a broad working class coalition. That's the story of Chicago over the past decade and a half. The Chicago Teachers Union has been at the heart of these transformations that have taken place that didn't exist previous to the transformation of the Chicago Teachers Union in 2010 when a left-wing militant caucus took over that union, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. Everything that's happened in Chicago over the past decade and a half has been centered around that. So it's not exactly a complicated model. It is a model that other cities could replicate. But having that kind of left-wing militant uh, municipal union as an anchor institution seems to be the secret sauce. Those of us in New York with the UFT would look at the Chicago Teachers Union with some envy too. What's their secret? The UFT has a number of internal barriers that prevent the kind of internal democratic contestation that res has resulted in changes in leadership over the decades that Chicago has seen. Uh, UFT has been much more of a one-party state, which has prevented the kind of challenge, let's say, from the movement of rank-and-file educators more, which is a similar caucus that's kind of modeled on the caucus of rank-and-file educators in Chicago. They've done important work in the city, but they have not been able to come anywhere near uh, taking power uh, in the city's teachers' union because there are these kinds of internal barriers. But other cities have done some similar work in Chicago. If you look at Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Teachers Union, United Teachers of Los Angeles, has in many ways modeled itself on the CTU, had some internal union leadership changes that led to them going on strike multiple times over the years in 2019 and just this year, along with an SEIU local there. It is a replicable model, and Chicago shows that uh, some pretty incredible things can uh, be built if you've got that kind of progressive democratic teachers union at the heart of that working class coalition. Let's talk about the mayoral race. It's a complicated process, right? There's a bunch of candidates starting, and there's a runoff, right? So just go through the routine. What, how did it unfold? When Brandon Johnson announced that he was going to be running for mayor, famously, uh, the still mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, at the time, said about the Chicago Teachers Union, they've endorsed Brandon Johnson for mayor. God bless. Brandon Johnson is not going to be the mayor of Chicago. It's almost a direct quote from Lori Lightfoot. Uh, and at the time, it made sense that she would say that. Uh, he was polling at 
many people, myself included, thought that it was all, always a, a complete long shot that the union would run their own candidate. I mean, obviously, the union has become a central institution of the left pole of politics in the city. But the idea of running one of their own, a former rank and file middle school teacher who then went to work for the Chicago Teachers Union as an organizer, running such a person for mayor and winning, I'm unaware of any comparable figure winning the mayoralty of a major city in the U.S. in all of American history. It was always a complete long shot, but Lori Lightfoot, for various reasons, was a wildly unpopular mayor. She only took... Yeah, what were some of those reasons? Uh, she, for one thing, one of the very first things that she did upon winning office in 2019 was uh, really antagonize the Chicago Teachers Union. There was a strike in 2019, shortly after Lightfoot was elected to office. And she openly antagonized the CTU. She clearly didn't learn the lesson of uh, previous mayoral administrations that were sunk by their uh, going toe-to-toe with the CTU, like uh, Rahm Emanuel. If you talk to anyone in Chicago politics, there's a real sense of exasperation with her leadership, both because she was a typical kind of neoliberal Democrat in the city of Chicago, but also because she was needlessly hostile to basically every person she came into contact with. Um, So she ran this sort of pro-corporate term, her one term in office. And as I mentioned, antagonized the CTU repeatedly. She only took 17% in the first round of uh, the election. Uh, There was a runoff and Paul Vallis, who is the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, uh, and really emblematic of the kind of neoliberal democratic approach to public education. The very title, CEO. Exactly, yes. He has been one of the key hatchet men for austerity in public education, not just in Chicago, but in New Orleans and and throughout the country. And so uh, the the second round, uh, the runoff uh, round uh, in the mayoral race, was pitting the former CEO uh, of Chicago Public Schools, hatchet man for austerity, versus... Uh, rank-and-file militant Brandon Johnson. Uh, Brandon Johnson was a member of the caucus of rank-and-file educators from its earliest days. So the CTU had uh, very effectively called the question on uh, what the future of the city of Chicago's politics around public education was going to be. They produced a situation in which the runoff was between CEO of CPS versus rank-and-file trade union militant, uh, and the rank-and-file trade union militant won. And then what about the crime issue? Lightfoot was blamed for the spike in crime, right? Yeah, the crime was really the one of the central issues, if not the central issue, of the race. And what's interesting about that coming out of the election is that when you hear, when pundits hear, when, when local reporters hear that very strong majorities of Chicago are concerned with crime, they assume that that means that uh, an election like a mayoral race will break for the tough on crime candidate. And this is the That's how we got Eric Adams. Yes, exactly. And this is how Paul Vallis ran his campaign on a kind of law and order platform. And Brandon Johnson's approach to this uh, is one that I think certainly progressive and left candidates around the country should be paying attention to. He did not run on the slogan defund the police. In fact, he rejected it whenever he was asked about it, which was frequently on the campaign trail. Uh, And he said instead uh, that we need to get at the root causes of crime and give things like youth job programs for the summer to uh, give employment opportunities and economic opportunities to young people who uh, may be otherwise uh, engaged in crime uh, in the city of Chicago. We need to, uh, in the city of Chicago, reopen mental health clinics that were closed, public mental health clinics that were closed by Rahm Emanuel during his mayoralty, that there needs to be an investment in social services rather than uh, continuing to just throw more and more money at more and more police. It was a, a very different approach than most people take on the question of public safety. If it will bear fruit, it is certainly something that other similar candidates to him uh, should be paying attention to and running on. But it's also what mainstream media, all of his opponents uh, are looking to really uh, impale his mayoralty on. I mean, if you watch right wing media, for example, one of Tucker Carlson's final broadcasts as anchor on Fox News was him saying that Brandon Johnson is going to be causing chaos in the streets 
During the election, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union, said that there was going to be blood in the streets if Brandon Johnson was elected mayor and that a thousand cops would resign their positions if he won. Uh, There was recently a a story a few weeks ago where a large group of young people gathered in downtown Chicago and engaged in some minor rioting and some minor violence that was covered wall to wall by local media. Does Chicago have anything like the New York Post shouting high volume all the time? No, that is, uh, there would certainly be a different dynamic in the city if that was the case. There's nothing like the, you know, the the Sun-Times is the sort of like secondary newspaper uh, in the city of Chicago, but they don't have that kind of uh, right-wing frothing at the mouth approach to law and order. But certainly all of the rest of mainstream media was saying that it was this huge problem that there was this minor riot that happened in downtown uh, Chicago. And were one of the stories that came out of that riot was that uh, someone took somebody who had been beaten during the, that riot to a police precinct. And that, according to the person who brought the person there, the, brought the victim of uh, the beating there, the officer on duty said that this is the result of Brandon Johnson being elected the mayor of Chicago. Uh, so this kind of dynamic is going to be present throughout uh, his mayoral administration, that there are there are many forces in the city of Chicago that will be looking to uh, use the crime issue to end his mayoralty. And of course, nobody really understands what has produced this spike in crime since the beginning of the COVID era, right? Because you don't know where it came from, it's pretty hard to figure out how to solve the problem. Yes, and what Brandon Johnson is pledging to do is, as I mentioned, these investments in social services, you know, public investments uh, rather than a punitive approach to public safety. And it's not one that I think uh, has really been tried, certainly at this scale uh, in recent years. The answer has always been to throw more and more money towards policing and uh, towards a more punitive vision of of policing. Uh, So it'll be a, a model that's really worth watching. And what about the rest of Vallis's politics? Uh, pretty conservative? The Johnson campaign got a lot of mileage out of running these tapes of Vallis appearing on right-wing radio shows, saying that he's more of a Republican than a Democrat, uh, really buying into some of the right-wing culture war stuff. He was very clearly, in addition to the kind of austerity politics that he has pushed throughout his career, although, as we know, that is both a, it's a bipartisan effort. <laughs> it's not just Republicans who have pushed that. But Vallis clearly suffered uh, from the Johnson campaign repeatedly saying in a democratic city uh, that he had pretty conservative politics, uh, that they they made that a centerpiece of their messaging. Uh, and now what about the city council? There was a, a nice little uh, socialist caucus in the city council. How's that doing? The number of city council members who are signed up to a kind of, uh, you know, both those who identify as socialists and those who are more progressive types, has grown uh, immensely over the years. And that is also uh, a sort of less remarked upon, but also important aspect of what's happened in Chicago. The Chicago Teachers Union hasn't just gone on strike and you know spoken out against things like school closings and uh, gentrification and police violence. They've also been one of the central institutions, along with other labor unions and progressive-minded community groups that uh, started the United Working Families, which is the kind of political arm of this movement, that has elected people from city council to the Cook County Board, which is where Brandon Johnson came from before he was elected mayor, uh, to the state legislature, to Delia Ramirez uh, in the House of Representatives. They have built an alternative working class politics in the city that has resulted in new openings on the city council. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the, the Chicago City Council, which is uh, historically been a kind of rubber stamp body for whoever is in the mayor's office. And now it's going to be, I think, much more contentious. Uh, famously, during the Harold Washington administration, uh, the former mayor of Chicago in the 80s, there was something called the Council Wars. It was just like open warfare on the city council around the Harold Washington agenda. I don't know if we're going to see something similar under Mayor Brandon Johnson, uh, but certainly the, the left-wing forces on uh, the city council are more organized uh, than they have been and have greater numbers than they have been in a long time, and that'll be essential to carrying out whatever kind of progressive agenda Brandon Johnson wants to carry out. I'm speaking with Michael Utrecht, editor of Jacobin Magazine. What about the relationship with the state? In New York, we're completely dependent upon uh, New York State to authorize taxation of any significance. The city is basically a creature of the state. What's the relation between the Chicago city government and the Illinois state? The relationship is not quite like it is in New York, which I 
think is a result of the history of the New York fiscal crisis in the 70s and uh, other things. But there are issues like rent control that have to be decided at a state level in the state of Illinois. Chicago can't just pass that on its own. Brandon Johnson spoke in front of the state legislature this past week. The United Working Families has allies at the state level and uh, has been pushing for things like a progressive state income tax at the state level. But there are also opportunities for things like uh, revenue raising at the city level. One of the things that Brandon Johnson ran on was the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance, uh, which would tax real estate transfers of over a million dollars and use that money for uh, affordable housing programs. If he's able to pull that off, that was one of his big three campaign promises. That would be an incredible victory and would be one that would come from taxing the rich uh, in order to pay for social services, which is, of course, something that progressives and leftists have been pushing for for a long time. I presume Chicago is subject to the same uh, high housing costs as the rest of the country is. Nowhere near as bad as a place like New York City, but gentrification is certainly uh, running rampant throughout the city. That, That was a central messaging of the Johnson campaign has been a central message of the Chicago Teachers Union and its allies for a very long time, uh, that the, the city is becoming a kind of playground for the rich. Gentrification is happening, and, and there are even far fewer controls. There's no rent control in the city of Chicago or rent stabilization. So that's a major issue for the city as uh, housing costs all over the city uh, are rising at the same time as there's uh, cuts in public services. Like many other American cities, gentrification is a huge issue, and it's one that the Johnson uh, mayoralty will have to take on. And uh, the, his victory was very narrow, right? What will that do uh, to his capacity to govern? Well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, he won by 2%. Uh, it was called on election night, which a lot of people didn't think it was actually going to be call, called on election night. So it wasn't so close that it couldn't be called on election night. But uh, it was a narrow victory. Uh, but it was a victory that was achieved despite the fact that Brandon Johnson was outspent two to one by the Vallis campaign. Just blank check after blank check was written by corporate Chicago to Paul Vallis, assuming that they could coast their way to victory that way. And they could not defeat the kind of grassroots uh, organizing and uh, turnout and door knocking uh, that the CTU and its allies were able to uh, achieve. And also on that point, I want to mention that even the mainstream reporting recently has emphasized that this was the path to victory for Brandon Johnson, was the, the kind of army of grassroots activists that uh, were knocking on doors, that were true believers in the Brandon Johnson and the CTU program. Even if you're being outspent two to one, if you don't have people who are actually true believers in your candidate in the way that so many of the Brandon Johnson supporters were, you could not buy your way to the fifth floor of City Hall uh, in Chicago. I imagine no futures traders would be knocking on the door for Paul Vallos, though. (laughs) <laughs> they don't seem to get out much on the doors. Uh, they, they, they're they much more comfortable uh, writing checks, despite the fact that there have been like a financial transactions tax uh, that's been floated as a possibility for years in the city. Uh, so there's real potential for those uh, traders to be uh, facing new taxation. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 they pay people for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, paid uh, canvassers are just not as effective or enthusiastic. Um, what were the demographics of the support for the two candidates? What did they look like? Two of the biggest parts of uh, Brandon Johnson's path to victory were, one, 80% of black Chicago voted for Brandon Johnson. The city is roughly evenly one-third, one-third, one-third uh, black, Latino, and white. Uh, and uh, Black Chicago came out very strongly uh, for Brandon Johnson, despite the fact that many uh, Black Chicago leaders, uh, not all, but uh, many of them came out for Vallis, which was an interesting sight to behold in Why itself. Why is that? I mean, you know, when you've got infinite amounts of money, you can write large checks. Maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But also, I mean, clearly, Brandon Johnson and the Chicago Teachers Union have been a threat to the kind of mainstream democratic leadership's agenda of, of austerity, of cuts to public education, of pushing charter schools, of gentrification, all of that stuff. This has been the agenda of the Democratic Party in Chicago uh, up to this point. Uh, so they were rightly threatened by uh, what Brandon Johnson and the CTU were arguing for. And they were betting on uh, the candidate who 
could defeat that kind of agenda because they themselves, much of the black leadership class, uh, the political leadership class in Chicago, has signed up for that agenda as well. 80% of black Chicago, the, uh, the actual voters, uh, voted for Brandon Johnson. So that was crucial to the victory. And then also, something that was very interesting that I got to see up close when I was in Chicago uh, was the kind of turnout machine that has been built by some of the left-wing aldermen, uh, the city council members in the city. Carlos Rosa, who is the city council member of the 35th Ward on the northwest side. Uh, On election day, I saw his uh, group, United Neighbors of the 35th Ward, uh, their turnout machine was incredible. There was just an, a constant stream of people coming in and out of the office all day long going out for Johnson. The same was true in the weeks leading up to the election. Uh, and he, in the 33rd Ward, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, who I believe has been a, a guest on this show before, similar situation, like a, a really incredible turnout machine uh, that she has built in her ward on the northwest side. And they really ran up the numbers for Brandon Johnson in those wards. 25th Ward, another socialist alderman, Byron Sigcho Lopez. In all of those wards, they ran up the numbers very high. And these are often wards, all three of the wards I just mentioned, are formerly working class Latino wards, still heavily Latino, but are gentrifying pretty rapidly. Uh, And that kind of coalition of working class Latinos and mostly white gentrifiers was pretty essential to his being able to bring up enough numbers to win the mayoral race. There was some concern that Latinos would not vote for uh, Johnson, right? And enough did to make him mayor, right? Yeah, I mean, the uh, both the what was happening in the wards that I just mentioned, uh, where there are leftist aldermen uh, who are in office, uh, as well as uh, other places in the city. I mean, uh, Chewy Garcia is a... Uh, an important force in uh, Chicago politics and specifically Chicago Latino politics. He's now a member of the House of Representatives. He ran for mayor in this race and didn't make it to the runoff, but endorsed Brandon Johnson. Um, so, uh, yes, that, that combination of factors delivered enough Latino votes for him to win. And so uh, I guess what happens with crime is going to be an important uh, influence on how this mayoralty works out, right? Yes, crime will be one of the top issues. I expect there to be continuous wall-to-wall coverage in both local and national media. And anytime anything major or minor happens in Chicago crime, I expect there to be you know individual stories of muggings or or, or beatings or whatever being trumpeted from the mountaintops as the proof of the chaos of Mayor Brandon Johnson's regime. Uh, right-wing media is not going to let up anytime soon. Uh, I mean, they are all looking at Chicago as a threat to the kind of narrative that uh, that they have been pushing for for all this time, which is that we need more punitive policing and, you know, that investments in social services aren't what makes people safer. That's going to be constant and it will be a, a very, uh, you know, a model that is going to be worth studying whatever happens to see uh, how a, a self-styled progressive administration that has thus far, both in the campaign and in the interregnum between him taking office, has refused to back away from a more progressive vision for public safety. We'll see if it can if it can succeed. And finally, what lessons for other places? The story out of Chicago is one that is. It's hard to overstate the kind of transformations that have taken place there within this union and that have that have really transformed the entirety of the city's politics. It has been anchored in the labor movement, anchored in the CTU, as well as uh, several SEIU locals, Local 73 and Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, other uh, public sector uh, locals um, around education and, and other public sector unions. Uh, and that has also brought on board a broad range of progressive community groups. This is a model, as I mentioned before, it's it's not a complicated model. It is what many leftists have long argued for within the labor movement, that there needs to be this kind of fighting spirit within unions, uh, democracy, militancy, willingness to strike, but then also willingness to ally with uh, progressive community forces uh, and and even take on their demands uh, for what you're fighting for. In Chicago, that uh, model has not just led to amazing moments like the 2012 strike when the CTU won, repeated strikes that the CTU has carried out. It's led to a transformation of the city's politics 
uh, all the way up to the mayor's office. So uh, if Chicago can do it, uh, other cities can do it as well. That was Micah Utrecht, the editor of Jacobin. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago. The town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. On State Street, that great street, I just want to say. They do things they don't do on Broadway They have the time, the time of their life I saw a man, he danced with his wife In Chicago, Chicago That was some of, well, you know, Frank Sinatra singing about Chicago. So sue me for obviousness. Next, a look at the effects of the Ukraine war on once what were some of the most ardently neutral countries in the world, Sweden and Finland. They managed to avoid taking sides during the Cold War, and Sweden stayed neutral during two world wars. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed all that. Finland has just joined NATO, and Sweden would like to, but its membership is being blocked by Turkey over its alleged support for the Kurds. This junking of long-standing neutrality has come with a weakening of the country's dedication to social democracy domestically, especially in Sweden. Both countries have also seen a strong and worrisome growth in nativist right-wing parties, the Swedish Democrats and the Finns. We're now joined by Lily Lynch, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Balkanist magazine. She's been covering the issue for New Left Review's sidecar blog. Lily Lynch. The tale is that uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has uh, shaken the Nordics out of their non-aligned peacenik illusions, and uh, they're all now hot to join NATO and uh, fight Russia. How fair a caricature is that? I think it's pretty accurate. Generally, it's right. There are some caveats that I would put on that. NATO membership is genuinely pretty popular in, say, Sweden and Finland, uh, who are the two formerly neutral states. Sweden still kind of languished not outside of NATO. They're, um, they're going to be being blocked by Turkey over issues of uh, Kurdish issues. But um, I think that the, the public is generally supportive of NATO, though I would say that the media situation is very dominated by Atlantis' discourses, and there's not a tremendous amount of space for debate. And that's, I would say that's much more true in Finland than Sweden, though. Sweden, there's a longer history of, of non-alignment or neutrality, sorry. So um, I think that it's, and it also does not share a border with Russia. So it's less pressing, there's less support for NATO. But in general, what, what strikes me, though, about the whole thing is that you don't have a, a public debate about what is the what keeps us the most safe. Uh, and you don't have a referendum in either country on whether or not to join NATO. And so what we're basing this idea of NATO's popularity on is polls. And, and so what people tell me when they say we don't need to have a referendum is look how popular NATO is. We don't have to have a referendum. But well, then why do we even have elections? If you actually had to put together a referendum, and of course it's expensive and it takes time to do that, you'd actually have to have a debate. And I think that there is a bit of uh, reticence to actually have an open debate. And you see that, I see, or at least I see that online when I discuss um, issues of Euro-Atlantic integration, and there's a tremendous amount of kind of control around that discussion. And people will immediately tell you, control the narrative, I would say. This seems strange to me, um, in that these countries maintain their neutrality throughout the Cold War when the Soviet Union seemed like a really frightening superpower. Now we see Russia unable to conquer Ukraine. What precisely are they afraid of, that they're going to roll through the Baltics and then into um, the Scandinavia? What's, what's exactly the fear here? What changed from the Cold War days? Honestly, that's a really good question. Of course, also in Sweden's case, um, it was neutral for two world wars. So we're, what, what could be more catastrophic than those two wars of the last century? I'm also a little bit puzzled. I know that there are discussions about the sort of militarization of the Arctic and some concerns. This is not my area of expertise by any means, but there is some discussion of perhaps some 
potential confrontation in an Arctic. But in general, I have to say that I am a little bit partial to the explanation that this is a shock doctrine approach for the Nordics and other countries in Europe that are neutral, that are also being subjected to some pressure that they would not have been. They're using the war to expand NATO, basically. And to, to kind of and that that was also part of the reason why there was no referendum in Sweden that the public has voted on everything from like adoption of the euro to European Union membership. And they say, you know, we don't need to do that this time. And of course, you know, with more time, that would have, again, probably led to a much more complicated picture when it came to uh, support for NATO, as we saw in Macedonia, which I covered myself, I was there. The um, referendum was on whether or not to change the country's name in order to join Euro-Atlantic structures. And the uh, the referendum was boycotted by the vast majority of the population. And so it's, it's actually constitutionally illegitimate. The supporters of NATO enlargement in the country, the West, Western embassies all just said, well, OK, we're going to just push it through anyway. Both um, Sweden and Finland have had elections recently. Uh, Sweden's, what, last September? And uh, Finland just uh, less than a month ago. Um, so let, let's talk about those two elections. Um, first, uh, Sweden. How did the NATO issue affect that? And what was the outcome? The Swedish election, I don't think that like NATO was a huge... I think it was a little bit more important than in Finland, mostly as it pertained to the Social Democrats. A bit of a polarization within the Social Democratic Party in Sweden, where you have the Olaf Palma side supporting like neutrality, and then people who are more Atlanticist. NATO played a bigger factor there, but I still think that it was probably not as big of a factor as some other issues like the economy. Of course, you had a very good result for the uh, far right in that election. The Sweden Democrats, who formerly were right-wing critics of NATO, but then they sort of um, embraced not only NATO, but also sort of neoliberal Thatcherite policies. They formerly had had this, we're the true guardians of social democracy. You know, the social democrats abandoned their Sweden for Swedes kind of thing for socially liberal policies and were the true inheritors of Scandinavian social democracy. And um, But then again, they've, they've changed their tune and now are neoliberal. It's, it's funny. I mean, you know, parenthetically, it seems like this idea of right-wing social democracy just is not flying, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you keep seeing these attempts and then it kind of always falls apart, like, right? It, around the, I don't know, little bit of head before they get into power. In many of these cases, they need to form some kind of coalition with powerful, like center-right, like mainstream right parties, you know, um, the respectable right, so to speak. And in order to do that, in order to get gain access to those rooms and uh, negotiations, talks, they have to adopt a more business-friendly and more Atlanticist-friendly line. Now, the Swedish business class was very pro-NATO, right? Um, the Wallenbergs, who own like a third of corporate Sweden, are, are very much behind it. And Saab, looking for contracts? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made on this war. Sweden has a military-industrial complex, and there's a strong contingent of very powerful business community that is was pushing very, very hard for NATO membership. And we're saying that, you know, if Sweden was the only country to remain outside of NATO in Northern Europe, that it, you know, that would be detrimental to its economy. What's up with the Social Democrats? Uh, they spent uh, much of their last time in office dismantling social democracy. What is their position politically, both in terms of uh, their program and also their status? I have a, a critical position on this. I think that uh, the Swedish Social Democrats you know, are not the party that we learned about in, in America as this sort of a pinnacle of humanitarian foreign policy, um, non-alignment, and um, good welfare. It is very far from that. Um, and they've really sacrificed a lot of that in recent decades, really. The kind of unraveling of Swedish social democracy has been underway for, for a long time. People are shocked to hear it, especially in the States, among like a lot of leftists even in the States are surprised to hear that the school system in Sweden is basically privatized. Like, you know, it's like Milton Friedman's dream. It's totally not the paradise of socialism that we've been lied to about. They have a coalition government now? What's, what's uh, the arrangement? 
Yeah, they have a, it's a right wing government. Um, so the Social Democrats in Sweden uh, lost the election. They actually, there's this pattern emerging. I think they gained two seats, but actually lost. They came in third, actually. Um, so the Sweden Democrats and then the mainstream moderate party, they're main, sorry, mainstream right. They, they call their bourgeois right. And they call themselves bourgeois, which is really funny, uh, kind of proudly. This is like, Carl Bildt's party, a former former uh, foreign minister, a very powerful Atlanticist, and probably the person who spearheaded NATO in Sweden the longest, with exception of maybe Anders Oslund, who you maybe have seen on uh, Twitter advocating like everything short of like you know nuking Moscow, like really like the most crazy stuff comes from the Swedish Atlanticists. Um, well, he bears a lot of responsibility for the reconstruction of Russia after the Soviet collapse. Not a good responsibility he bears. Not at all. Not at all. There's this theory, I remember hearing it when I was living in Ukraine in 2014, that that click, you know, really just decided, like, let's continue, like, you know, we've gotten so much money in order to, like, reconstruct Russia, and let's keep this project going. This is a good thing. This is a gravy train, you know, like, we're getting so many good, like, you know, government money contracts, like, let's just continue um, and see how far we can take things. And, and those are the people who really kind of ended up leading our foreign policy in Eastern Europe, and they became much more... More, I would say, you know, emboldened since the annexation of Crimea. And you've seen sort of a lot of the cooler heads, uh, unfortunately, not taking prominent positions and sort of the, the loudest, I would call them like activists, um, a- activist foreign policy kind of people um, taking the lead. What's the role of the Sweden Democrats in this government? They play a, a supportive outside role. So I think that basically what it comes down to is they have agreed to not pull out of the coalition the main, more mainstream right wanted to put a tiny measure of distance between themselves and the Sweden Democrats because the Sweden Democrats are such a taboo party. They have like actual links to neo-Nazism and um, they're members of their party or in ministries. I mean, they have more power than they ever have. And this is a very right-wing government in Sweden. The other parties have adopted a lot of their uh, anti-immigrant nativist politics, right? Right, right. It's kind of a rightward move in all directions. So what, what happens when these um, mainstream right parties adopt a more xenophobic line and then the supposedly like the welfare chauvinist right populists adopt like Thatcherite economic policies? All right, let's move on to uh, Finland. Uh, the glamorous Santa Marin is out. Uh, what happened? That's a contentious one. You know, I got into a little trouble for this article I wrote about it. Yeah, she's out. I mean, she's magnificently popular, you know, um, abroad and a very polarizing figure in Finland. And I think that people who loved her in Finland really, really loved her and people who disliked her really strongly disliked her. But she was also not the rock star in Finland that we saw abroad. And that's a bit of a pattern, you know, with where we create these stars out of these kind of rising empowered women leaders like the former yes what's her name yes Arden and, and uh, New Zealand and um, Kaya Kallas in Estonia but anyway her party she's a social democrat as well they gained three seats but they still mm. came in third just pretty like not a good result people tried to argue with me you know this is they did very well um, again, again this is part of narrative control yeah, so she she lost again. It was almost identical pattern we saw in uh, in Sweden. You had uh, the populist right Finns party coming in in second place, and then the, the the respectable bourgeois right kind of centrist party coming in first. What were her politics when she was in office? What what, what they actually do? Basically, her trademark legislation that she tried to have passed was uh, about enhancing the rights of the Sami people, which are the people who, the indigenous people living in like Lapland in the north of Finland. This is like what she was pushing for her entire time in office. And she was uh, obviously received a lot of goodwill from progressive voters in Finland for it. And then it failed like two months before the election. It just completely collapsed. And so she cobbled together a kind of... Um, an interesting coalition of sort of like green and like more left alliance, which is a, the leftist party, uh, main leftist party in Finland. Uh, she cobbled together this kind of like female-led large coalition, and it seemed very kind of fresh and exciting. But it was about these like figureheads more, these female figureheads more than it was about like a tremendous amount of great policy. Now, of course, if your only measure of what matters is NATO membership, she did a great job, and of course. That's the only thing that matters to um, you know, Anglophone media in Western Europe and the U.S. 
I'm speaking with Lily Lynch, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Balkanist magazine and a contributor to New Left Review and its Sidecar blog. We had a great paragraph in that article in uh, Sidecar um, about Instagrammable politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really felt like that. I mean, every she's very photogenic and telegenic and very sympathetic. I can certainly understand her, her appeal, but I, I didn't see a tremendous amount of meat on the, like a lot, a lot of like policies that actually were able to be like instituted that were meaningful, again, outside of this sort of very hawkish response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which if you're the leader of Finland, you share a border with Russia, and it's an, also an external border of the European Union. I do understand that it demands a, a response of some kind. The part of it that was the most sort of shocking for me to hear again from people who were um, former supporters of hers were, you know, that she authorized the building of this like razor wire fence along the border with Russia to keep out Russian men fleeing conscription. Freedom. Uh, Yes. And they too have a far right party that seems to be gaining. Right. The Finns, they did better than they ever had. It used to be called the true Finns. So if you, there's the same party, Um, they kind of tried to rebrand themselves a little bit. Again, they have a female leader who's relatively young and also is into Instagram. Actually, that party is extremely social media driven. And this is also true of the Sweden Democrats. And I, I, my understanding is that these far right parties realized early on that they were so stigmatized. They were such a taboo and so stigmatized by I mean, like kind of more so-called mainstream media that they realized they needed to get really good at using social media to communicate directly with voters because they felt that they weren't going to be taken seriously or that they were going to be deemed, they felt they would be demonized. The Finns have a female leader who is a, like a vegan and like, it's very interesting. It's like a kind of different kind of flavor of, um, of far right than I've seen before. She's really into plant-based uh, variety. So her Instagram is no politics. It's just what I eat in a day kind of like. Really. <laughs> there are three MPs from her party, from the Finns, youngish guys in their early 30s or late 20s even and they all they all like adopted tiktok they actually really took the tiktok to complain about sanamar and this is kind of how they took her over i think in a way the most popular party by a pretty large margin in both countries is the far right party and the sweden democrats in sweden and the Finns in um in finland and let's sleep over to um estonia for a moment there they have a new iron lady <laughs> yeah kaya Kallis. You uh, write about a feminist foreign policy, a formula, female, youthful, telegenic, hawkish, neoliberal, no nonsense. She fits that bill, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's very interesting to me. You know, I I would also, along with her um, and Sanamar, and I would include the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbach. She's also, again, in this sort of, in this category of youngish and um, fresh and wraps the support for war and a sort of feminist concern and invoking human rights rhetoric. It's almost easier for these sort of countries, like maybe Germany is a really good example where this pacifism has been baked into the country since World War II, you know, as a sort of horror of what happened. They've been just so deeply pacifist. The way that they've been more eased into uh, accepting a more pro-war policy has been through this sort of like somewhat feminist, although the German Greens, which is Annalena Baerbach's party, uh, they supported the bombing of Serbia or Yugoslavia in 1999. And that's a whole different story. But, the, but I think that this, the way in the Nordics and generally like Northern Europe, maybe the publics had become increasingly more pro-war has been through the, these very appealing very sort of sound-minded seeming kind of reasonable women who are don't come across as the sort of hawkish figures like Reagan was in, in the Cold War, where American just seen as like kind of drunk cowboys in Europe. And there were these huge protests against, you know, stationing missiles in, in, in Europe. These women have succeeded in, in kind of putting a friend, like a softer face on, on NATO, you know, and I think it's probably also connected to the current um, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, a Norwegian social democrat who is the, at the helm of NATO currently. There has just been this sort of general move to sort of put a softer, more social democratic, more female, more youthful face on, on war, which you can understand it, it's probably an easier sell to a lot of people. These women, I mean, not to be crude about it or anything, but they're quite beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're not the snarling fascists of old. Right, right. And they're, they're quite appealing. They're very 
adept at, you know, talking to media and it's more difficult to, to shoot them down. Obviously the men, it's really funny just to kind of contra- contrast their posture with the men in Europe who are like Schultz is like being really dragged for his uh, alleged reticence to to like arm Ukraine to the degree that it would like. Um, you know, Macron is seen as sort of unreliable. There's a real uh, feminization of, of, of war in Europe. It's very interesting to watch. And Estonia, too, is a libertarian paradise, right? Right, yeah. They adopted very early on from the beginning of independence, uh, this sort of like techno-libertarian Silicon Valley of Europe sort of ideology. And it was to define themselves against the Soviet Union, which they kind of associated with like technological obsolescence and sort of like decaying Chernobyl, which is the anniversary today, you know, the, the, the decaying like infrastructure and technology, they were like, no, we're with the West, we're like a libertarian technological paradise. And they have like all these government services available online and they have e-voting, which is extremely controversial. And um, this most recent vote, I think that was the first time in Estonian history um, that they, a majority of people cast their vote online. <laughs> it's pretty funny for an American here where we have like not a 19th century voting system. So and I'll let's conclude with the, the big picture of all this. Um, it looks like the Russian invasion of Ukraine reconfigured politics across Western Europe, strengthening ties with the U.S. through NATO. We even have people talking about the EU handling Russia while the U.S. handles China. Um, how deep and how durable is this reconstruction, this realignment? That question is going to be answered by time and the, how much the individual publics in these countries can withstand really severe economic decline in living standards and um, higher food and energy prices, like how long, and also it will depend a lot on sort of how the war goes. And if there's no end in sight, people are going to get a little bit restless. Once you're in NATO, like I don't think you're going to get out of NATO. There might be um, a pause on the next round of enlargement. But I don't think that there's going to be like a breakup of NATO. I think that it's more likely to happen and in the EU is going to be under more pressure. But certainly there's going, you know, I think that you're going to see more um, anti-war sentiment as the war goes on and uh, um, as things don't improve on the economic front, as long as that's not given attention. Um, I think we're going to see some uh, more protests. And then, of course, governments are going to have to decide, do they want to respond to that or not? And uh, of course, we're all, all operating in a highly controlled media environment, which is very little space for discussion about the war. And um, yeah, no, yeah, you mentioned that and wanted to return to it. So yeah, expand on that some. Yeah, what's going on? How do you see this? It's a complicated question. Like on the one hand, um, I understand like, what war does and how it, like, the, the urgency of it, and how, and I understand the, res- the terror and like the, the response to the war was um, one of like shock and needed to perhaps be uni- seem un- unified and strong. Um, at the same time, I think that it's really unfortunate that we've made diplomacy and negotiations equivalent with genocide apologism and uh, supporting surrender. I think that diplomacy is an important tool. It's like a lost art. I feel like nowadays everybody takes the most kind of strident position. And if you are saying that, you you know, pressing for negotiations is uh, by default a a, a pro-Russia position, you know, that just does not hold water. I mean, I, when it comes to negotiations, I, and I like the, the old saying, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the table. If you're not there advocating for yourself at the table, where's your voice really? So negotiations and like uh, peace talks like should be considered like an essential part of what's going on for Ukraine and in Ukraine's best interest, I think. Yeah. But those of us who live in an Atlanticist bubble should remember that the, much of the global South is not uh, part of this uh, this realignment and this consensus. Right, which is very interesting. I think it's it's funny. You know, I've been I've been living in Serbia for for a long time in Belgrade. I mean, Belgrade, um, and Belgrade was the uh, kind of the capital of the non-aligned movement. This is where they had the first summit. And I, I attended the 60th anniversary summit several months before the war started, which will, I think, always go down as something profoundly historic, and I'll never forget it, um, because it was the uh, Russia actually joined as an observing member for the first time. So Lavrov was there. And you could hear already in that 
room and like with the and this is the entire global south represented basically you have like african countries uh, asian countries caribbean countries uh latin america um so this is like the rest of the world the non-west and you know the fury at the west we don't get to see that and hearing it over and over again from each foreign minister or prime minister or you know whoever defense minister whoever was sent there on behalf of the, the each country you know to hear it from you know one thing you expect to hear it from like venezuela or syria or something but this is really across the board the frustration about vaccine nationalism there was this sense that like the west was letting people die in the global south um there was a, a sense of like you know that of um that human rights are only respected in certain uh, instances and that um, sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty is only uh, respected in certain uh, instances when it's pleasing to the West or when it's in the West's best interests. And it was a fascinating because I, I saw that anger that it, I'm sure that you know, it was always there um, during the Cold War, but I, I saw it right before the war started. So I was not in the least bit surprised by the reticence of the global South to get on board with the war. Just looking at the votes in the UN condemning Russia, I mean, I think that it, uh, there are a lot of countries who will vote to condemn Russia's actions, but will retain economic ties, will not sanction Russia. And this is um, this is something that I think that is hard for people in the West to understand. Non-alignment does not mean condoning war. It means that you're a small state preserving its dignity and it's um, trying to make the best of what is a very chaotic and difficult global environment. And, you know, little states have two choices, you know, small countries. It's like they can either join with a powerful bloc like NATO or say, you know, join with a sort of like Eurasian Union or whatever the alternative Russia is trying to build. Or they can remain neutral and try to kind of balance these major powers off each other and try to maximize their benefit. We see countries doing both of those things. And the thing is, we don't really respect it. Um, I hear all the time when it comes to NATO, countries have the right to choose their own security arrangements. You hear this like repeated, like, like parrots repeating it over, over and over again. And then when it comes to, you know, countries have the right to like have their own economic policy, make sure their pe- people are fed. When you say countries have the right to their own security uh, arrangements, it only means one direction. And it only ever means like they are allowed to be in NATO, which great if a country like democratically wants to be in NATO, who am I to say no? If a country is choosing a different path or sees that it can like uh, maximize its own security or economic benefit, hey, what well, that's what we that's a, um, they're supposed to do is what leaderships of countries are supposed to do. That was Lily Lynch, co-founder and editor in chief of Balkanist Magazine. You can find a lot of her recent writing on New Left Review's Sidecar blog. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this: some of David Bowie's "Up the Hill Backwards." Till next week, bye.